Hey, so I became a follower of Jesus when I was a freshman in college, and I was fortunate enough uh, to have others who invested in me, who kind of mentored me spiritually. We would call that who discipled me here and um, who, taught for, who taught me and modeled for me what it meant to live the Christian life. So I was taught right out of the gate how important it is to memorize Scripture. And one of the very first verses that God used to begin to shape and mold me is found in John chapter 3, verse 30, and here's what it says. He, or Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. And I would keep this verse on a mirror so that when I got up every morning and looked in a mirror, that would be the thought that I would see. And these amazing words were uttered by a man known as John the Baptist. Now, listen, John did not come to start a denomination, okay? He was not a Baptist in the sense that you and I think of Baptists. Uh, in fact, his name literally should be translated as John the Baptizer uh, because he was known for his ministry of baptism. And uh, he, he tells us very clearly that he was kind of a herald or a forerunner, that his primary job was to announce, you know, the coming of Jesus, right? And in fact, if you've ever watched Fantastic Four, The Silver Surfer, you get this. You know what I'm talking about. Because The Silver Surfer came to be a herald or a forerunner, came to announce the coming of Galactus, right? In other words, John was saying, look, I'm just singing the national anthem before the big game. I'm just the warm-up act. I'm just a small part of a way bigger story that God is telling through Jesus. And this leads to a super important observation. Because John knew who he was and how small he was, and he knew how big Jesus was, right? And this is why he said these incredible words. But here's what you need to know about his baptism and why it was so important. Uh, John and Jesus and Paul all declared that John came to baptize with a baptism of repentance. Now, repentance just means to change your mind about something. Um, in this case, to change your mind about Jesus and about your own sin. Okay, and here's what you need to know about John's baptism. His baptism was offensive to Judaism. It was offensive to the Jewish religious leaders because he encouraged Jews to get baptized as a sign of repentance from sin. In other words, if somebody got baptized by John, they were admitting that they needed cleansing from their sin. They were admitting that there was darkness in them. And this was scandalous in Judaism. Because how dare John call into question Israel's privileged status with God? See, they believed they had privileged stand status with God, and they believed that their standing with God came because of their lineage, because they were children of Abraham. 
And so because this was so scandalous, they send an official delegation to John asking him where he got off baptizing Jews like ordinary Gentiles. I mean, was he the Messiah? He tells them no. Is he Elijah? He says no. Is he the prophet? No. So since he confessed to none of those things, they want to know by what authority do you claim to baptize people for the forgiveness of their sins, right? And John tells them, he says, look, I'm nothing in myself. I'm just a voice. I'm just a voice of one crying in the wilderness. And he quotes the prophet Isaiah. And they would have known this quote, right? In other words, he tells them this. Look, my authority is not rooted in myself, but my authority comes from the Messiah who's going to come after me. And as you might expect, this powerful delegation that come to kind of quiz John, they weren't impressed with his response. So, What does this scandal uh, created by John mean for you and me today? And this is so important that we understand this. In a word, it means that God wants something more for us than just standard religion. He wants more for you and I than just standard religion. See, these rulers who came to question John had plenty of religion. They were zealous about things like prayer and fasting and tithing and Bible reading. And those are all good things that we should all be doing. Yet, for all their religious zeal, do you know what John called them? He called them a brood of vipers. And he demanded that they show the fruit of repentance or a changed mind. Well, what fruit? I mean, what fruit was John after? I mean, in other words, what does God require beyond praying and fasting and tithing and Bible reading? And the answer is that He wants for us exactly what we're asking you to do on this all-in journey. John lays this out very clearly, what the fruit of repentance looked like. And he lays all this out in Luke chapter 3. So you can go there and study that on your own if you like. But essentially, here's how he described the fruit of repentance. He said, he wants us to love our neighbor. He wants us to show compassion on the poor and those who are less fortunate than ourselves. He said, look, this is, these are the words of John the baptizer. He said, if a man has two coats, let him share one of them with him who has none. And likewise also is food. In other words, if you have plenty of food, you should be willing to share your food with people that have less food. He said this, he said, let a man be content with what he has. In other words, don't always be grabbing for more and be willing to share what you have with those who have less than you. See, repentance for John, changing your mind for John, has everything to do with how we use and think about and invest our resources, our stuff. Uh, In other words... Are we using our time and talents and treasures for the benefit of others, or are we just nothing more than hoarders? Uh, Here's what I want us to do. Um, 
You know, all of us have a story, right? And I I want us to kind of watch the screen because for the next few minutes, Pastor Craig is going to talk about how God has been shaping and change his heart, changing his heart to be more than just a hoarder. And so I want you to check out your screen. My wife and I moved to Shelbyville in 2013 to become the pastor of communications at Shelbyville Community Church. At that point, photography, design, video, like it was an obsession. Uh, Non-stop learning, working for the church, working side jobs, investing the money that I earned in those side jobs into new gear. And there came a point when my boss at the time and my good friend Jason, he said, Craig, you need to find a hobby that doesn't involve a screen. Like, you're going to get burnt out if this is what you're doing all day, every day. When I first started working at the church, Pastor Brad was doing a teaching series called More Than Words. And I had this idea to make a big, like, eight-foot by eight-foot tall Scrabble board that we were going to put on the stage. And at that point, I had no real woodworking experience. Like, I moved to Shelbyville with a little, like, Black & Decker drill and uh, went to builders in town and got two-by-fours and some sheets of plywood and I built a Scrabble board in my garage and I had an absolute blast. And like that project really got me interested in building things. And so I kept doing various stage design pieces at the church, but my interest started moving into our house. And I started looking at what furniture we needed. The more that I built for myself, the more people started asking if I'd be able to build for them. And so Mondays became like my absolute favorite day of the week. I was getting a break from uh, digital creation and getting a break from just the day-to-day grind and I was able to just work with my hands and I loved it. At that point, I would say that woodworking and ministry were two very separate things. But in 2018, things started to change. I had the privilege to go on several mission trips. In June, our high school kids went to Washington, D.C. to work with Experience Mission. One of the organizations that we worked with in D.C. was called the D.C. Central Kitchen. And they create over 5,000 meals every single day. But on top of that, they also run a culinary arts program where individuals who have difficult past life experiences are able to learn job readiness skills and culinary arts skills. And once they finish the schooling portion of that program, they get an internship where they get to put into practice the skills that they've learned. I started thinking to myself, like how can we meet immediate needs in our community and at the same time set up people for long-term success? How can we take discipleship and apply it to apprenticeship. I started writing and I started dreaming and I started sharing these questions with various people. And as I began talking to business owners and city leaders, the way that I viewed Shelbyville really started to change. Uh, It went from just being a place that I lived to a place that I wanna be proud to call home. As I started looking at Shelbyville with honest eyes and with open eyes, things became very apparent. After attending a comprehensive community plan meeting, uh, it revealed that 50% of our community rents the homes that they live in, and this has created kind of a loss of ownership, right? Not only of homes, but of our community. You know, 20% of our community lives at or below the poverty line. 46% of our students uh, that are in our school system are on free and reduced lunch. Like substance abuse has continued to ravage Shelby County. And this has had a major impact on our community 
affecting crime rates in the legal system, the family structure, the medical field. 90% of the inmates in the Shelby County Jail are there on drug-related charges. And up until five years ago, there was no program in the county jail to address addiction. Meaning, once the incarcerated were released, they returned to the same environment without any skills to change. And my wife and I have recently become foster parents. And while we were in training, uh, the gal that was leading this training, she made an interesting statement. She said, you know, every kid in the foster care system will look bad on paper, but they still need a good home. And that statement just played over and over and over again in my head. And the reality is that every single one of us looks terrible on paper. Like if we wrote down everything that we have ever done, we would look terrible on paper. But the beautiful thing is that Jesus doesn't see us as the worst thing we've ever done. When I look at our community, there is some dark, dark stuff going on. But I believe that people are more than the worst thing that they have ever done. And so while we're seeing physical restoration and renovation happen throughout our city, 87% of our community isn't connected to a local church. That means more than three quarters of our community doesn't know Jesus. And this is the restoration that we've been called to to be a disciple-making church that brings hope and healing to the community, to be about the restoration of the heart. Now, I really believe that the true measure of our character is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated, the condemned, because people are more than the worst thing that they've ever done. This is why I'm excited to launch a shop ministry in Shelbyville a shop ministry that will be a full production furniture shop, creating goods for the home and the workplace, offering classes to the community, and creating a training ground for individuals needing a hand in Shelbyville. Our goal is to help rebuild the lives of individuals overcoming negative experiences of past life patterns, equipping them with valuable work skills, and providing the gift of work. A place that values faith and restoration, wholeness, hard work, in craftsmanship, a place where people can overcome their past and establish a future. The products that we'll sell, made of wood and leather and metal, they represent the raw materials which have been transformed into beautiful vessels of usefulness, just like the individuals who crafted them. You know, Shelbyville was once known as Little Grand Rapids because of the vast number of furniture companies. And I'm excited to bring some of that history back to life. So here, here's the question. How does a heart get shaped and changed like that? Let me tell you, when Craig came here to do ministry, his idea of ministry involved a screen. And you heard him talk about that, right? And Craig would be the first to tell you, it's going to sound like I'm throwing Craig under the bus. Another can be further from the truth because I'm so proud of Craig. But when he first came here, he just wanted to edit videos and, you know, design websites and take care of equipment. He didn't have a heart for people. And now you hear him talking about, you know, being, providing foster care and making a difference in people's lives. I mean, how does God change a heart like that? Well, 
That's what our all-in discipleship journey is all about. Having God come in and shape and, and you know, change and mold our hearts. And so here's what I want to do. We're going to read through this story we're going to look at today with John the baptizer. And I just want you to listen to the way that, Jesus ta- that John talks about Jesus. We're going to make a couple of observations. And then uh, we're going to pass some stuff out. So, okay, so... Uh, Verse 22, John 3. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water there and people were constantly coming to be baptized. They, meaning John's disciples, came to John because he was a rabbi just like Jesus, uh, came to his disciples and said to him, Rabbi or teacher... That man who, is, who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you've been talking about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. So what his disciples are saying is, John, you've got to stop this. I mean, the trains are going off the track here. Jesus is becoming more popular than you. People are coming to him instead of you. You've got to make this right. You've got to do something about this. To this, John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. I want you to underline that because we're going to come back to that phrase. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. And that joy is mine, and it is now complete. And then he says this phrase that I love so much, and we'll come back to it as well. He must become greater and I must become less. Some versions say it this way. He must increase and I must decrease. And then look at how John goes on to describe Jesus. He says, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. It's just incredible words by uh, John the baptizer. So I want to focus on two uh, aspects of what John says there. First, verse 27, where John says, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. In other words, here's what John is saying. John is saying that everything that you and I have, everything that we are, has been received from heaven. In other words, it's been given to us by God. John was saying that, now he was making this statement in regard to influence and ministry, right? He was saying, look, if Jesus is growing more influential than me, I've got to be okay with that because that kind of stuff only comes from heaven. But it applies to everything in our lives, including our stuff. See, the clear and overarching of I, the idea of Scripture here that John is speaking to is that God is the owner of everything, and He's made us managers or stewards 
um, of, of the things He's given to us or loaned to us. Because for all of us, right, the day's going to come where we're going to have to give it all back. We don't get to keep it. We don't get to hold on to it, right? And that one day we will all be held accountable to God for how we use, spend, invest, and think about our stuff. And because God owns everything, God has the right to ask us to consider how we use it, how we think about it, how we invest it. Because a man can receive only what has been given to him from heaven. And then I want us to look at verse 30 together because John says these amazing words, he must become greater and I must become less. So this is so counterintuitive because John is actually saying that he's going to decrease so that Jesus can increase, that he's going to become less so that Jesus can become more, right? And this isn't what we would think at all. I mean, like, because here's what's so amazing. You know, John says that becoming less so that Jesus can become more actually brings more joy, not less joy. He, he attaches this idea of becoming less so that Jesus can be magnified and glorified in our lives. He attaches it with joy. And this wouldn't be the way that we would think at all, right? We would say, hey, if I want more joy, I've got to focus on myself. If I want more joy, I've got to think about myself. If I want more joy, I've got to pamper myself. I mean, that's how joy comes. And John says, no, 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 no. Real joy comes in becoming less, having less, doing less, so that Jesus can do more. That's where the real joy of life you know, is found. And I want to talk about the why of that. And I think there are two reasons for this. Because I believe that when you and I magnify Jesus, when we become less so that He can become more, we are doing the very thing that we were created for and made for. In that moment, we are sitting in the sweet spot of the universe. Every one of us. And I think there's something else going on too. I believe that when we become less so that Jesus can become more, uh, we, we feel great joy because our Heavenly Father starts to share His joy with us. In other words, because our hearts and our minds and our wills are aligned with His, God reaches down and pats us on the back and says, boy, a girl, you're doing good. Daddy's proud of you. I'm going to share some of my joy with you in this moment because your heart, your will, your mind, they're all aligned to mind, to mine, right? I just think that's so cool. Now, listen, I'm going to be blunt and I'm going to address the elephant in the room. Because here's the elephant in the room. We're going to talk about your stuff and your resources. We're going to talk about money this morning. And I want to clear up a misconception. Because there are some cynics in the room. And here's what you're doing as a cynic. You're leaning back with your arm crossed. And you're going, okay, yeah, here. This is all about money. This was the end game right here. It's the money gig. You're just trying to get me to part with some of my money. And I just want to say this. Nothing could be further from the truth. And I'm going to tell you why. Did you know 
that Jesus talked more about money than anything else other than the kingdom of God. He talked more about money than prayer. He talked more about money than Bible study. He talked more about money than community. He talked more about money than going to church. Why? Jesus said primarily two things about money. He said, first of all, money is a power. And it is a power that will steal your affections away from God. It has the power to do that. And secondly, he said that when we, the, the way that we spend and use and think about and invest our money represents our affections. It represents what we value the most. In other words, if I were to look at your bank account, I could look at your bank account and the way that you spend your money, and in very short order, I would know what you value. I would know where your, because where your treasure is, Jesus says, right there, your heart will follow. And listen, it is, God does not need or want your money. Do you know what God wants? He wants your affections, He wants your heart. And your money represents what you value most in life. But let's not settle for thinking God wants something as mundane as just my money. No, He wants something way more valuable than that. He wants your heart. He wants your affection. He wants to be first place in your life. See, so what this campaign is after is ticking right here in your rib cage. That's what we're after. It just so happens that money represents that. And by the way, this is why some of you are sitting back with your arms crossed with all that cynicism, right? Because money's the thing, right, in your mind that makes life go. Money's the thing that makes life count. And gives us option and Jesus options, and Jesus would say, "No, there's something higher than that. It's me, right? So here's what we're going to do. Uh, our greeters are going to come, and we're going to give everyone in the room a booklet. And I want you to um, so when you get that booklet, uh, and by the way. We don't just want families to have, uh, have this. If, if you're here and you're married and your spouse is with you, we want each of you to get a book. Uh, but it's vital that everybody have one of these because this is the guide for our journey together. Now, a um, couple of things. I'm just gonna, what I'm going to do is I'm going to let this booklet kind of breathe a little bit. I'm going to point out some things that are in this booklet, and we're just going to kind of walk through it together because I want you to know what's here. And my concern is that if I didn't walk through this booklet, you would go home, you would throw this booklet down on your kitchen table, throw tomorrow's mail on top of that, and never actually get around to noticing or looking at what is in this booklet. Okay, so here's what I want you to notice. First of all, I want everybody, once you get these booklets, I want you to turn to page 19 in the booklet. 
And what you're going to notice first is that the whole back back section of this booklet contains a devotional and a prayer guide. Uh, So in other words, most of the real estate of this little booklet is uh, wrapped up in that, in in daily devotionals and in daily prayer prompts. So, and I'm so excited about this, and here's why. Because one of the things we've said about this campaign is that we're going to go all in together on our relationships with Jesus. But the truth is, many of us have never, ever gotten into the habit of having a daily time with the Lord. Some people would call this a daily quiet time. Some people would call it the discipline of solitude. I don't care what you call it, but what what we need for you to begin to do is to do it. Right? And so, listen, I get so excited about this because if you've never had a daily time with the Lord, a daily time of studying Scripture, your relationship with Jesus is going to begin to take off. You're just going to begin to grow in your relationship with Him. And furthermore, in this daily devotional, we are going to be studying the book of Acts together. All 28 chapters, and here's what's so cool about the book of Acts. The book of Acts is all about the local church moving out from the four walls of the church and moving out into their community. And that's exactly what God is calling this church to do. But it gets even better than that. Not only are we going to be studying the book of Acts, but we're going to be studying the book of Acts together. So it's going to be really cool because today we will start lesson one. And what that means is today, as I'm doing my devotional in Acts chapter one, right? That everybody else in my church is also studying the same thing and doing the same devotional so that we're all being challenged in exactly the same way. I love that. I think that's so cool, but it gets even better. It's almost like, wait, there's more. You know what it is? It's the little blue at the bottom of the page. Look at that for just a moment. At the bottom of every devotional is a prayer prompt, or a prayer guide. So not only are we going to be studying the same things together, but we're going to be praying the same prayers. Hundreds and hundreds of us praying the same prayers every single day. How cool is that? So for example, day one, here's the prayer. We're praying for our relationships with Jesus, right? We're going to pray according to Colossians 1.18 that Jesus came to have first place in everything, right? We're going to pray that our church family would put Jesus first in all things and we're going to ask that our own families and our own church would be willing to surrender every aspect of their lives to their Lord and Savior and so we're all going to be praying that prompt and then Monday we'll go into day two right and we'll all study the same devotional and then go through the same prayer prompts together and here's why this matters so much because if we're going to be all in on our relationship with Jesus we're going to have to be engaged in the disciplines that elevate our relationships with Jesus and you can't microwave this you can't shortcut this the reason that Craig's heart has been changed and transformed is because for many, many years, Craig has been engaging in some of these spiritual disciplines, and so do you, and so do I. Because more than anything else, this is a journey 
for transformed hearts and renewed minds more than anything else. Okay, now, then I want you to notice, I want everybody to turn to page 18 in your booklet, which is the page right before the devotional and the prayer guide. And I want you to notice that there are some important dates as well as some questions and answers. Now this book just went to print and already one of those dates is wrong. So I want to point that out. You're going to notice something called an advanced commitment night on November the 8th. That is not true. Our advanced commitment night is November the 15th. Our Advanced Commitment Night is for those of you who were invited to any of our three stakeholder meetings. This would be staff and elders are going to be at the Advanced Commitment Night. This is going to be uh, small group leaders and key ministry leaders are going to be at the Advanced Commitment Night. And then uh, all the folks that were invited to our third stakeholder meeting at ECHO, you too are going to be part of that Advanced Commitment Night night. Uh, Now, then most of us will have an opportunity beginning a week later to begin to bring our commitments. The only thing, other thing that's wrong in the book is it says that we will close out the campaign in November. That is not so. We're going to give you three opportunities, three Sundays, November 22nd, November 29th, and December the 6th to make a two-year giving commitment to Jesus. Okay, so we'll be doing that uh, right up into our Christmas series. Okay, so having covered that, now what I want to invite you to do is to turn to the front of your book, and we're all going to look at page 6 together. Page 6. Now, I want you to uh, notice that there's our vision statement right on page 6. We've referenced that repeatedly during our journey, right? But then I want you to notice that on page seven is our three journey pillars. And I want you to look at those. We've said we're going to go all in on our relationships with Jesus. That's one pillar. We're going to go all in on family ministry. That's a families and family ministry. That's a second pillar. And then thirdly, we're going to go all in on that third pillar, which is the community. That, that was the piece, one of the pieces for the community piece was Pastor Craig in the video that you just saw. Right? Now, I want you to turn to pages 8 and 9, the next two pages, because it's vital that you understand the the connection. So these featured projects are the the very specific things we're going to do to invest in our relationships with Jesus, to invest in family ministry, and to invest in our community. And so you're going to see a list of projects that are either designed to elevate families and family ministry or our ministry in our community. That's what our featured projects are all about. Now having covered that, I'd like you to turn to pages 11 and 12. This is such a cool page because this is kind of a self-assessment tool that you can take. It talks about the types of givers that exist in a local church. And so you can kind of find you know, what type of giver you are as you look at pages you know, 11 and 12. And it's, it's really simple, right? So if you're here this morning and you've never given a nickel or a dime or a dollar to Shelbyville Community Church, 
we want you to start. We're not going to tell you how much or what to give, but we're asking you to seek the Lord about how He's calling you to invest in this journey that we're taking together. And so maybe you're here and you would consider yourself an intentional giver, but not a sacrificial giver. Okay, how can you wrestle with God about how you can become a more sacrificial giver? You get the idea. And then I want you to turn to page 13. Page 13 actually lists all of our all-end expenditures and the cost for how the cost breaks down for everything we want to do. Okay, really important. Now, I also want you to notice as you're looking at that page that the figure at the bottom of the page represents, it includes our church budget for the next two years. Our 2021 church budget is included in that and our 2022 church budget is included in that amount. So I have a pie chart here I want to show you. And so you can see there that it's pretty well, um, you know, dispersed, right? That about a third of those expenses go to meet our op church operational expenses in 2021. A slightly higher amount goes to meet operational expenses in 2022, but that it includes that two-year community outreach expenses. And I know it's not much, but I do want to point out to you that the biggest piece of the pie here is what we want to do in our community. But we need you to understand that this includes... Uh, so in other words, when we ask you to become a giver, we're asking you to think about the money that you're already giving. And to just pray about whether God's calling you to do more or not. Or the next step. Or the next level. Right? Super important to understand all of that. And so we have two goals... One of our, our primary goal, the most important goal, is that everyone in this room wrestle with God about this, ask God, seek God about it. And then our secondary goal is that we raise the money to do the things that God is calling us to do. Right? Okay. Now I'm going to ask you to turn to one last group of pages and then we're going to start to wind all this down. I want you to turn to pages 14 and page 15. 14 and 15. On the top of page 14, you're going to see what's a one-fund initiative. That's what I just described to you, right? In other words, uh, we're putting everything into one basket, including church budget and outreach stuff. That's all that means. Uh, but the chart here, the giving chart that we're looking at, is really, really important, and I want to make this clear. So when you look at that chart, you can see the number of gifts that, we would, that would be needed at each level, right? What an annual gift would look like. Now remember, this is a two-year journey, a two-year commitment that we're all making together.
So that's why it includes two years of the church's budget. And so what's really cool about this giving chart, and, when, and all of us asking the Lord, where do you want me to be on this giving chart, is if you evaluate the last two years of your giving, you're going to see where you've been on this chart in the last two years. And by the way, if, you're not give, if you haven't given anything, you pretty much know where you stand on this chart, right? And we're going to ask you, take the initiative to begin to be a consistent, uh, relevant giver, right? So you can kind of say, okay, God, here's where I am right now on this chart. You know, do you want me to go up one level, two, three? God, what are you asking me to do? And then finally, the last thing I want to cover and make sure we're clear on is on page 15, you're going to see a formula, a giving formula. And I want to break this down. So on line one, you see what you would normally give in one year. So we filled this in for Beth and Steve Smith. Let's say they give $2,400 normally in a year, and they can, they can dip into their savings or their cash, and they can offer an additional $750 each year. So their giving total each year is $3,150. But because this is a two-year journey, you double that number, right? Because that would be one year. So two times $3,150 equals $6,300. But then what Beth and Steve have done is they had an old boat, and they decided to sell that boat because there's that was a stored resource that they have and they were able to sell that boat for two thousand dollars and they were going to bring that to the campaign as well so when you add their two-year commitment to their stored resources you come up with that eighty three hundred dollar commitment now I want to talk about stored resources for a minute and here's why this is so important because if we approach God with this and we say well God my retirement's off the table and you know my camper's off the table and my boat is off the table and all the rental houses that I own are off the table and my retirement is off the table everything I've you know saved for for that then I would ask the question what is it you're really offering to God what is it that you're honestly wrestling with God over? Because it doesn't sound like you're giving God access to very much. So that's why it's so important to look at that stored resources section and pray about what it is that God would want you to do. All right, now here's what I'm going to do. So tune back in. We're done with the book. You're going to take that home. You're going to wrestle with God over that. But here's what I want to do. I just want to tell a story that illustrates why it is so important that we take this journey together. Okay, so here's the story. The football team at Northwest High School in McDermott, Ohio, had a young man by the name of Jake Porter on its roster. Jake had a disorder called chromosomal uh, fragile X syndrome, which means he is cognitively challenged. He was born with a much lower IQ than most of us, right? But Jake loved football. 
He absolutely loved football. So he goes out for the team as a freshman, and he showed so much spirit and so much heart, the coach didn't have the heart to cut him and to send him home. What he did instead was he made Jake come to every practice. Jake ran through every drill. He dressed in full gear for every game on the schedule, knowing that he would never actually get out on the field during a real game. He knew that, but he just wanted to be part of the team so bad, right? So the schedule was winding down to the last game of his senior year, and his coach, a guy by the name of Dave France, wanted Jake to get in the game, just get a play in, right? So he explained Jake's situation to the opposing coach, uh, to the opposing team, right? And he just asked, hey, if the score's really lopsided at the end, do you think we could get Jake in the game for just a play? And, you know, they practiced all week just having Jake take a handoff and then just take a knee. So that's what Jake had practiced all week. But when he explained this to the opposing coach, the coach said, absolutely, I, I have no problem letting Jake get in the game for a play. So they get to the end of the game, it's a fourth quarter, and the score, they are beating Jake's team 42 to nothing. So it was a pretty lopsided score, right? And so at the end of the game, uh, our coach, five seconds left in the game, called a timeout, went over to talk to the opposing coach, and the opposing coach said, you know what, I don't just want Jake to get in the game, I want him to score a touchdown. And he's like, what? So, so Jake's coach goes back to the sideline and he says, he gets him in the huddle and he looks at Jake and he says, Jake, big boy, you're going to take it to the house. And Jake's like jumping up and down. He's like so excited. He's going to get to score a touchdown. So what this other coach did was he instructed all of his players not to tackle Jake, not even to chase Jake, just to open up and let, let Jake run through so that he could actually have the joy, know the joy of scoring this touchdown, Right? And so, uh, you know, they get in formation, they call the play, and they hike the ball. And by the way, you can actually watch this on YouTube. Jake takes the hand off him because he practiced all week long going down on the knee. You see, he starts to go down. He gets about this high. But his teammates are going, no, don't do it, Jake. Run, run for the end zone. And they're like pointing for the end zone, you know. And then the opposing players, they're like parting. And they're like pointing for the end zone. You know, the referees. And the coaches are like running down the sidelines, pointing at the end zone. And so from the 49-yard line, Jake begins to run. It takes him 12 seconds to get into the end zone. And when he gets into the end zone, like players and coaches just rush him. The players put him up on their shoulders, and they're all jumping up, and they're all jumping down. The, I mean, people leave the stands, and they just invade the field, and everybody's cheering, and everybody is so excited because Jake Porter scored a touchdown, right? I mean, grown men were crying. I mean, hardened football warriors were hugging each other. Right now, listen, let me, let me just tell you something. A lot of boys played in that game. And when they grow up to be old men, they're going to forget a lot of the details about that game. They may not remember many of the scores, 
But I'll guarantee you this. Not one of those men will ever forget the day that Jake Porter scored a touchdown because Jake Porter's touchdown became everybody's touchdown. Everybody had a hand in that. Everybody participated so that Jake could score a touchdown. And I'm just asking you, I'm asking you to participate so that people who, who you know, have experienced less than we have can know more, can know what it feels like to get in the game and maybe even to score a touchdown. But for that to happen, we have to do that together. And that's the ask of our all-in journey. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to respond. Mike's going to talk to us about how we're going to respond in worship. Oh, hey, by the way, too, with all-in, um, you know, if you want a t-shirt like this, um, we do have those available. Uh, you can just pick one up if you'd like it in your size. Now, we have run out of some sizes. I need to tell you, these run a little small. I usually wear a large. This is an extra large. Uh, so they do run a little bit small. Um, and so you'll want to keep that in mind. But if you go to get your size t-shirt today and we don't have it, um, we will have more available in your size next weekend. Okay, so you can pick it up then. Hey, let me pray for you and us before we worship together. Hey, God, um, you know, this is a journey about our hearts and our minds. And I just pray we'd all be all in together because the reality is Jesus you know we're gonna we're gonna take communion together and we're just gonna remember together that you went all in for us and so help us respond in the way that you'd want us to we ask and we pray in Jesus mighty name amen